Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. If you've lived in Charleston in recent years, you probably would not be surprised to learn that it's the most expensive place in the state for low-income individuals to live. One of the biggest expenses is housing, and rent in the Charleston area has spiked considerably over the last several years. Today, we're going to be talking to reporter Andrew Brown about how much people in the Charleston area need to make just in order to cover their basic expenses. And then later, we'll be joined by Fleming Smith, who recently looked at how homelessness specifically affects women in our area. These are, of course, two topics that during the coronavirus pandemic are especially relevant and especially important right now as so many people are struggling. So I want to start by just going through some of the key findings of this study, which was done by the University of Washington and released last week by Trident United Way. So you start the story by saying that the cost of living in the Charleston region is overwhelming low-income workers. And this this report gave specific um, dollar amounts of what someone would need to make in order to pay for their basic expenses in, in Charleston and in other parts of the state, too. So let's just start with that. How much does someone need to make in Charleston County right now to be able to pay for the basic necessities of, of life? What this study showed was that um, even if you're a single adult in Charleston County without any children, you would need to earn roughly $31,000 per year in order to afford housing, um, food, transportation costs, health care, um, and taxes built into all of that. That would come out to roughly $14.70 per hour if you were a uh, hourly worker, which is double the current federal minimum wage that exists here in South Carolina. The report was eye-opening also because it, it took into account, you know, uh, family dynamics and kind of what would happen if you added, you know, an infant or a preschooler or a teenager into that mix, how much you would need to earn. And so, for instance, that that changes dramatically, for instance, the child care costs that you'd need to cover. So um, one of the things I pointed out in the story is that if, if you're an adult, a single adult in Charleston County and you are still raising a preschool-age child, the amount of money you would need to earn per year jumps from $31,000 per year to $48,459 per year. That means that you would need to be earning roughly 20, almost $23 per hour, which is triple the current minimum wage. All of this puts into context that if you are what economists consider part of the working poor, meaning you're not relying on government assistance programs like Medicaid or food stamps, you need to be making quite a bit of money just to support yourself in Charleston. And how does this part of the state compare to other areas? Um, I don't think it's too surprising for people to hear that that Charleston County is the most expensive in, in the state, but what about Dorchester County, Berkeley County? How does that compare to um, other uh, areas around larger cities like Richland County, around Columbia, um, how does uh, how do those comparisons play out? What we're seeing, what this study showed was that um, it's not just Charleston County itself um, that is one of the most expensive places to live in, in the state. It showed that the tri-county area that makes up the Charleston metro area, which includes Berkeley and Dorchester counties, were also three of the four 
most expensive counties in the state. The only county that broke into that category besides those three counties was um, Beaufort, um, which is off, you know, would require someone who is single without any children to make roughly $27,656 per year just to support themselves and avoid relying on food stamps or, or Medicaid. But the study overall, it, it, to put it into context, Charleston County is extremely expensive and, and the surrounding counties are as well. But even if you're living in the most um, cost-effective areas of the state, which the study found Orangeburg to be one of the um, most cost-effective counties in the state to live in, you still need to be earning $13.80 per hour as a single adult in order to avoid relying on government assistance. Again, that's that's double the minimum current minimum wage, or almost double. What it shows is that if you're a minimum wage worker in South Carolina earning around just over $7 per hour, it's almost impossible just from a mathematical perspective for you to make it by without tapping into some type of safety net program. And the last time that this report was released was in 2016. What has changed since then? I guess how, how how dramatically have those costs changed? And I know one thing that you point out in the story too is that housing in particular, that cost has increased since that point. Um, so I guess just first over, overall, um, how has how has the how have these metrics changed since 2016 in terms of just how much money you need to make to meet those expenses? But then, then more specifically, um, housing and how that cost has increased in, in Charleston. Sure. Uh, what this study suggests is that there's been a lot of inflation going on in in various um, housing costs or childcare costs in Charleston County in particular, but across the state in general. You know, we're writing for a Charleston audience here, and they were the most expensive county. So I, I compared what the study found in 2016 to um, this year, and what it found was that a single adult in Charleston County now needs to earn $8,000 more per year just to keep up with those um, inflationary trends. And if you're a married couple with two children, you need to make eighteen thousand, almost nineteen thousand dollars more in order to, you know, just have the same standard of living that you had four years ago. A lot of that is being driven by the housing costs here. I, you know, the housing costs made up. If you look, you know, the United Way put out a great kind of like calculator on all of this. You can put in, you know, how many adults are in your family, how many children, what ages they are. And no matter how you slice it in that situation, the housing costs here are driving how much people need to make in order to make ends meet here. If you're a, a single adult, you know, you're paying, uh, you would need to, to have like a decent apartment in Charleston County, you would need to pay $1,270 per month. That's up from 2016. In 2016, you know, the researchers at the University of Washington found that uh, residents in Charleston County, single adults, would need to pay roughly $761 per month uh, for their, which would include like rental expenses as well as utilities. And that, again, that increases with the number of people you have in your family. If you need a two bedroom apartment, that cost is going to be even more. Uh, so what it really shows is that um, the, the price, the spike in housing costs in Charleston County and in the metro area in general 
are really driving how much money people need to make in order to make ends meet and make it by without tapping into some type of social safety net program. Right. And I think that's something to emphasize here is that that is what this study was was measuring, not not living uh, comfortably, you know, necessarily having extra money for, um, for for other things. This is about basic necessities, right? This is about not needing to uh, tap into those those federal programs. I think that's that's an important distinction to kind of keep uh, putting out there. Is is not that thirty one thousand dollars a year as a single person in Charleston will make you feel necessarily financially comfortable, just that it keeps you from needing to rely on um, some kind of assistance, right? Right. I mean, what it, what it's showing is like people, if you're earning the minimum wage, what it's showing is that it, it would be extremely difficult. I don't know how someone would be able to do it. It would be able to make ends meet, pay for rent, pay for food, pay for bus fares or uh, car expenses, um, medical care, and potentially child care, and not rely on some form of state or federal assistance. You know, again, this, this is, these are the people that economists refer to as the working poor. They, they have full-time jobs, they're, they're, they're working full-time, they're putting in hour upon hour at, at jobs, but are incapable at that that salary or that wage of of supporting themselves on their own. I wanted to also briefly talk to about unemployment and and you've been covering this a lot during the pandemic. We have of course a very high number of of people of South Carolinians relying on unemployment benefits right now because they were uh, laid off or, or furloughed during the pandemic. Um, just first, do we have an idea right now of, of about how many people are still um, using that unemployment assistance every week? Yeah, so there's there's several groups in that. Some people are receiving state unemployment benefits. Others are receiving federal benefits that were extended to them by Congress earlier this year. But in total, there's still over 200,000 people who are claiming some form of unemployment in South Carolina. That's a huge number. I mean, that's that's something that the state had, that's numbers that the state had never seen before in any unemployment crisis going back to the early 80s. Um, and probably before that, um, most most economists have estimated that uh, unemployment numbers like this haven't been seen uh, since the Great Depression. You know, the numbers have come down since the highs of April and May. But what we're seeing is that there is sustained unemployment here. There's there there are not enough jobs out there currently for everyone to return to work and for the economy to resume what it looked like in January. So. We continue to have tens of thousands of people relying on unemployment checks of $326 per week or less, depending on what they were earning prior to being laid off. Right. And that's that's why I wanted to, to bring that up in this context, because we've we've kind of laid out that that information about just how much it costs to to live in the Charleston area right now and and right like you said 326 is the maximum amount that someone can receive from the state uh there is some extra payment that people can 
receive, right? So initially there was that extra $600 a week that was being paid by the federal government. That is is no longer. That ran out in mid-summer. Um, at that point, people were making enough to be above that that level that by this study, for the most part, um, I guess if we're, if we're talking about a single adult, um, with that extra $600 a week federal assistance, they were making enough to meet their expenses in Charleston based on this study. Um, but it, now, like you said, it's at that $326 level or less. Can you explain a little bit about the additional 300 that some people are receiving so not part of that first $600 program but um, more recently that extra $300 benefit whenever the extra $600 per week that every unemployment eligible unemployment applicant in the country was receiving up until late July whenever that ran out Congress was in the throes of debating another stimulus package that would have included um, an extension of those extra federal unemployment benefits, that never came to be, and Congress is still deadlocked and you know arguing between the House and Senate and the White House about what a new stimulus package would include. So in the meantime, President Donald Trump tried to make extra money available to unemployment applicants throughout the country. He took um, $44 billion that was set aside for FEMA um, and federal disaster relief and diverted it to state unemployment agencies so they could provide several weeks of extra federal unemployment benefits of roughly $300 per week. That un- those unemployment, that extra unemployment benefits were supposed to be dispersed to people, you know, this month or last month and into this month. DEW has started to do that, but um, some people are obviously struggling to get through the system and become eligible for that. That extra $300 per week, which ultimately amounts, I believe, the, the most someone's going to see out of that is like six weeks of that, which would be $1,800. That's helped people a little bit probably, but it in no way enables people in the long term to be able to afford their rent, afford food, afford um, all of the things that they need to you know, sustain their lives um, in a high cost of living area like this. Right. And I know that you're, you've been hearing from a lot of people who are relying on those unemployment benefits can you give us just just an example or, or or two of of what you're hearing from people in terms of what kind of weekly benefit they're working with a week and what they have to pay for with that or who they're supporting? I talked to a woman this week. It was a pretty telling example. She she worked at Dillard's and worked at a fragrance counter there. Uh, she lives up in Horry County and she was laid off back in May. Uh, started receiving unemployment benefits. She's luckily receiving $326 per week, the maximum. Um, but even so, she said she has a mortgage, she has a car payment, her utilities are due each month. And even with the $326 per week, she said she's she's not being able to meet all of her bills. So she's actually putting dated, you know, week-to-week expenses on her credit cards. She's already maxed out a line of credit that she had from a bank. Um, and so she's just falling deeper and deeper into debt at this point, just to to keep her home and to keep her car in the hopes that she'll find work eventually. Oh, thanks so much, Andy, for for writing about this this study and also joining us today to to talk more about it. And 
and, and like we said, you've been talking with a lot of people who are relying on these unemployment benefits. What's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, you can reach me by email. My email is abrown at postingcourier.com. Um, I'm happy to field any calls that people, what they're dealing with right now and how the situation is affecting them. We're also talking with reporter Fleming Smith, who recently wrote a story about how homelessness affects women in Charleston in particular and some of the unique challenges that those women face. So first of all, thanks for for joining us. I wanted to ask, what made you want to write this story? So over the past few months, um, I've been covering homelessness from a few different angles. And, you know, in terms of um, how children are affected, how uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has made resources even scarcer in some ways. And I realized when I was looking back at those stories that I didn't have a lot that shed light on how women specifically were affected by homelessness and the obstacles that they face in ways that perhaps men didn't face. So I wanted to explore that aspect more. So specifically what are some of those those challenges what are some of the things that that women who are homeless face that 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 men might not and i guess are there are there any differences in the resources that are available to them Mm -hmm. so women can be particularly vulnerable to abusers and predators um, especially if they're trying to take care of children um, all by themselves as well because a lot of times women will sacrifice their comfort and even their safety um, if they think it can be a better situation for their children Um, and there are also fewer resources to help men than there are to help women than there are to help men Um, for a lot of shelters they're specifically oriented towards men and women aren't allowed um, you know for safety purposes but just in general um, you know, women don't always have access to the same kind of transitional help that men can get. Um, and, you know, you also have, while women are um, like a lesser percentage of the homeless population, um, you know, there still is a lot of demand for safe and affordable housing that can be very, very hard to get, especially when landlords don't always want to rent to, um, homeless, or to tenants who are formerly homeless. You mentioned that women make up a smaller portion of the homeless population. Do we know about what that that percentage is? Yeah, according to a 2019 report on homelessness in a low country, about 30% of the homeless population was female and it works out to about 480 individuals. Um, and 13% of the homeless population said they were taking care of at least one child. And for many, that's multiple children. You wrote about one group in particular that's trying to help women in the Charleston area who are experiencing homelessness, and that's Walking Women Welfare. Uh, How did you end up connecting with them, and can you tell us a little bit about what this group's philosophy is and, and what they're trying to do? Right. Um, I met them a few months ago um, at a rally in North Charleston that was kind of protesting the lack of resources, especially from the local government, um, to prevent homelessness. And they only started about a year ago, um, but they're very passionate, um, all volunteers. Um, And their philosophy is that it takes women to help women. And many of them uh, have been through homelessness themselves or have struggled with um, abuse and addiction. Um, And so what they want to do is to open up a house that's only for single women that would um, give them self-confidence and the skills that they need to get back on their feet. Um, And it would be modeled off a program in North Charleston for men called Bounce Back um, that's actually led by one of the walking women welfare um, volunteers. Um, But they have um, had some challenges um, in finding a house in particular. They've looked at about 50 over the past year, but... um, 
Yeah. It's hard to find a landlord that's willing to rent them the property at an affordable price. Um, a lot of landlords um, consider formerly homeless tenants risky or undesirable. Um, they've had trouble, I think, with um, like homeowners associations and realtors and things of that nature. There's this perception that, oh, these are the people we don't want in our community. And you actually went with that group, right, when they were um, out out in the community and, and trying to meet with some people and kind of share some some resources share some actual um, items to help them too right so tell me more about what happened that day did you just go out with them one afternoon or morning or 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 what was that day like yeah so they usually go out about once a month um, on Rivers Avenue and kind of drive up and down Um, I went out with them on a Saturday afternoon where um, they went to a Walmart and kind of looked in the woods um, behind Out Rivers Avenue Walmart because sometimes, um, especially with men more than women, but you'll have people who kind of camp out in the woods um, who don't have any shelter at all. Um, but mostly um, they found a lot of women and families in some motels on Rivers Avenue and they were giving out clothes, um, some food, bag lunches, soup, um, feminine hygiene products as well because that can be really hard and expensive to get if you, know, you don't have a lot of money um, for extra things. Um, And so that was a great opportunity. Um, I was able to talk with some women who were actually going through homelessness um, as Wilkin Woman Welfare was handing out applications for their house. And um, when I talked to those women, um, the biggest challenge that they were facing was finding affordable housing and decent affordable housing. Uh, One woman told me that she has a 10-year-old daughter, so she wants a safe place where her daughter can play and um, you know, not feel like she's in danger of anything, but it's been hard to find that. Uh, she's been looking for years, really, and, you know, she's um, in this motel. Um, and another woman told me, you know, she's paying $50 a day for a room, and sometimes she has to choose between um, having money for food or being able to pay her rent. So it kind of creates this vicious cycle where no matter how hard you work, um, you don't have the money to um, get a, an affordable, safe place that you can stay in reliably, because as you mentioned, um, you know, housing is so expensive in the Charleston area, um, and it's getting more expensive by the day. Right, like we were just talking with, with Andy about housing is really that cost that has changed the most um, in in the Charleston area in the last several years in terms of those those necessities um, that people need to, to pay for. Um, I'm wondering, too, what did you hear from the women who are part of this organization? Uh, Why did they get involved? Why did they, um, you know, feel feel motivated to help women in particular? And have any of them experienced homelessness themselves? Yeah, for many of them, it's very personal. Um, I spoke to one volunteer with Walking Women Welfare who said um, that when she came to Charleston a few years ago, Um, she only had a place to live for a few months before it was torn down to make more expensive condominiums that she wouldn't have been um, able to live in. And she nearly had to live in her car um, on like the Interstate 26 and like a rest area. Um, She managed to live with a friend, but she still didn't really have a stable place of her own um, to live in. And that's, you know, the fact for many homeless women, Um, even though they might have a roof over their heads, it's not their roof, um, or it's a place that's not easily affordable, not somewhere they can stay reliably. And that's especially hard when they have children where they have to find a place near to a school, near a playground, somewhere safe, and you don't know if you're going to be there the next day, the next week, the next month. Um, it's hard to live that day by day. And so for a lot of these women, they feel like you know they've been through homelessness or addiction or abuse. 
so they feel like they can be really good um, role models to women who are still struggling and say hey like you can get out of this like we can help you you can empower yourself to find the life you want the job you want the house you want um, like it's not um, I think for them a big thing is just keeping that hope alive because that's the hard part they said um, when you don't have that hope you just don't know where to go and you don't even know to ask for help at that point how have these problems been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic? And then also, how has the pandemic changed what resources are, are available? I would think with health precautions that some of the uh, shelters have to operate differently, um, uh, resources for, for women dealing with domestic abuse. Uh, those Those shelters probably are also changing how they operate. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so these shelters, they're often full to capacity at any time, um, but especially during COVID-19 when you have a lot of um, unemployment um, and a lot of you know costs that you have to deal with, um, it's even harder. And for some of these places, um, I know my sister's house, which is a domestic violence shelter in North Charleston, um, their house is empty at this point, but it's so that they can... Um, place women in hotels um, where they can live safely, you know, isolate themselves so that they're not at risk of um, contracting COVID-19. Um, other shelters, um, for example, are um, doing kind of a waiting period, a quarantine, per- a quarantine period before um, the people can get into the shelter, say like two weeks where they have to put them in the hotel. But that kind of creates challenges of their own. So you can't go straight to a shelter. And many times there is a waiting period you have to do. Um, And I think that's hard to keep it day to day. A lot of these places also often do community meals, which are harder now during the pandemic um, when there's, you know, such a thing about isolating and making sure that you're not having too much community contact. One of the sentences that really stuck out to me in your story was was this, and it's that fear of homelessness can trap a woman with an abuser, especially with how expensive it is to live in the Charleston area. So uh, those are things we've been touching on. And, and of course, like I said, in this whole episode, we've been talking about the cost of living in the Charleston area and the expense of, of, of housing in particular. But I, I want to hear more about what women had to say about domestic abuse and, and, and violence in particular and uh, and how the, uh, I, I guess, the, the expenses of, of living in the Charleston area, the difficulty um, that they're having finding housing, how that how that intersects with those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so domestic violence is one of the leading causes of homelessness for women, um, but there really aren't a lot of resources. Um, there are a lot of groups, of course, that are trying really hard to um, provide the women the help they need, um, such as my sister's house. But um, I believe they're the only um, domestic violence shelter specifically for that in the Tri-County area. Um, So out of that entire area, there's really only one place women can go and, you know, there's going to be a limited number of beds and they can help women outside of that. But if you need a place to stay um, immediately, if you're trying to get away from an abuser or a bad situation, um, your options can be very limited and you have to choose sometimes between that safety and between having a place to live for yourself, possibly for children. And really, there's kind of um, the sense in the state that although South Carolina does struggle a lot with um, domestic violence issues, um, I know one woman told me, well, there are more animal shelters than domestic violence shelters in the state. So, you know, you kind of see where our priorities are at some points. Um, I know when I was out with Walking Women Welfare at one of the motels on Rivers Avenue, um, one woman came up to the group and said, 
hey, I really want an application for your house, but you need to slip it to me so no one else can see because I have a partner who's watching me from our room upstairs. Um, so there's a sense that um, it's hard enough to ask for help already, especially if someone might be watching your every move. Um, and of course, of course um, domestic violence problems don't just stay in the home. They really affect the whole community, um, which is why groups are kind of saying, like, we need more resources to help this, um, even though it's only, you know, one part of homelessness for many women. But um, without stopping that, obviously, women are trapped, especially if um, you're in that cycle of having to stay with an abuser several times, even if you try to leave. I know you, you spoke earlier to the fact that th- this organization is, is having some trouble being able to realize that the goal that they have of, of having this, this, this home and, and, and how they're running into that, that, that challenge of just finding a place. What's, what's next for them and, and what are they hoping to be able to do next? And is there any way that, that people can help them? Yeah, you know, they're praying for a house by Christmas. Um, you know, they're still keeping a lot of hope. They've, like I said, they've looked at around 50 houses and um, haven't been able to find a match yet. Um, I think mostly because uh, landlords aren't willing to always work with them um, or they see it as a risk. Um, but, you know, they have all the furniture they need. They showed me um, how they have a storage unit full of stuff. A lot of it donated from hotels. Um, one, one female volunteer has her garage full of stuff as well. So they have everything they need. They just need that house. Um, I think in the meantime, um, they always appreciate donations in terms of clothing or just things that they can give out to women because they are still doing this outreach. You know, I think partly to give out applications for the house, but also to tell these women like, you're not alone. Like there's a way that we can help you. They're always handing out cards. And they have women calling all the time. Um, so I think it shows how sometimes if you do lack resources at the state or local government level, like there are people who are willing to step up and say, hey, like um, it's on us then. Like we've got to find a way to make things better for especially our fellow women. Well, thanks so much, Fleming, for, for reporting this story and then also joining us today to, to talk about it. We always like to ask if, if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can reach you? Absolutely. Um, they can reach me at my email, fsmith at postandcourier.com. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much to everyone for listening. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.